It's Wednesday, April 1st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. As COVID-19 testing capabilities ramp up and companies are coming up with new tests, why does it still take so long to get results? First, it is a multi-step process. Once a sample is taken, it needs to travel to a lab. Then it needs to be processed. And different circumstances and processing will lead to different turnaround times. Julie Appleby, senior correspondent at Kaiser Health News, joins us for the steps involved in testing and new ones on the way. Next, we hear a lot about confirmed cases of coronavirus. The U.S. has the most confirmed cases in the world right now. But unfortunately, that metric does little for us in the way of tracking how fast it is spreading due to uneven testing. Instead, some suggest we track the rate of hospitalizations and other factors. Faye Flam, columnist at Bloomberg News, joins us for why we still need a lot more data to find out true rates of infection and spread. Finally, coronavirus is forcing pregnant women to make tough choices. There are many hospitals with such tight restrictions that in some cases, a woman's partner might not even be allowed into the delivery room. Women are having to resort to FaceTime to have their partners present, and it could be falling to nurses to provide supportive care and camera work. Laura Cusisto, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The FDA authorized a new test developed by Abbott Labs that delivers lightning-fast results in as little as five minutes. That's a whole new ballgame. Joining us now is Julie Appleby, senior correspondent at Kaiser Health News. Thanks for joining us, Julie. Thanks for having me. A lot has been made about testing throughout this whole coronavirus pandemic. Right now, as everybody is clamoring to get tested, we're seeing serious backlogs on this still. It still takes a long time, despite a bunch of new tests coming out, besides new companies working on tests saying that, you know, we can get results in, uh, you know, as little as minutes to a few hours. There's still a lot of steps that are involved in all of this. And that's why things are taking so long. So, Julie, tell us a little bit about this. Take us behind the scenes at what this testing looks like. Right. And it does take a long time, as we've seen. People are being told, you know, you have to wait five or six or seven days in some cases to get a test. So why is that? So let's back up a little bit. We had some problems initially when the first CDC test came out. Those were resolved. More and more labs now have approval to run these tests and uh, larger labs and hospital labs, et cetera, et cetera. And as you mentioned, we're starting to see some quicker tests, but it still takes some time. There's a number of steps in the process, like first you get your nose swabbed, right, with one of these things, and they put that swab in a little tube and they send it off to the lab. And the lab then has to do some pretty sophisticated analysis of the sample, right, to figure out do you have COVID or not. And, and, that, and real quick, that's the first step, actually getting swabbed and then sending it to a lab. That could take up to right. a day depending on where the lab is, how far it is from where you got tested. That's correct. So you got to think about transit time. There's about a day lag there. Now, there are some places that are doing testing on site. So if you're at a large academic medical center, chances are they might have their own testing capability at that center. But they're probably limiting the testing to inpatients and to their hospital staff. So the reason they can get a result back a little quicker there is because they just do it in-house. So they don't have that transit time. But even when they do it in-house, there's a bunch of steps that have to be done. They have to put them in a machine generally. There's, ha- there's some manual work that the te- technician does. They have to, to extract some RNA and amplify the DNA. And there's all this sciencey kind of stuff. Some of it's done manually, but a lot of places, these big commercial labs have these machines that run them automatically. So they're faster. They can process more samples at a time. In a piece I wrote, I talked to a pathology lab at 
MedStar Medical Center in Georgetown here in, in Washington, D.C., and they can run 93 samples at a time in their machine, and they can run about three of those cycles a day, okay? So that's why they do it in-house at this hospital, but they're kind of limited in the number they can do. Whereas if you go to a test site and they might send it off to a large commercial lab that's, that can process 20 or 30,000 of these a day, so that might be faster, but then you've got the transit time and they've got a big backlog. So these are all the reasons why it can take a number of days to get results back in some cases, and in other cases, you might get an answer back sooner. And one of the other difficulties is that there's so many people that want to get tested. They want to have peace of mind uh, to know whether they do not have it or they want confirmation. If they're getting, if they have some type of symptoms, they want to know they have it so they can know what to do. And in a lot of these places, it's like almost a sign, like no walk-ins welcome kind of thing, because, you know, some of these sites have to, you have to follow a line, basically. Uh, you know, somebody coming off the street just can't get their test and get it done. They need to uh, prioritize these things to healthcare workers, to people that really have bad symptoms and are in ho- need hospitalization. And that's true. And that's because we don't have enough tests in the United States right now. They're working on ramping that up. As you mentioned, we've, we've got some new test kits out. They're starting to go out that, that can get results back quicker. And those are expected to be sort of point of care. When you walk in your doctor's office or the emergency room, you might be able to get a result back in 5 to 13 minutes. But that just got approved, you know, Friday night. And they're, they're going to start shipping them. They're hoping to ship 50,000 of them a day. But there's a lot of people, like you mentioned, that just want that peace of mind. Or, you know, if you've got it, you really need to isolate yourself. And so it's good to know, do you have it or not? But we're not there yet. Yeah, the test that you were just talking about that we can get, the one that just kind of got approved this past Friday, the president was talking about that one, um, you know, just trying to give people hope really that, you know, you can get tested and get a result very quickly, but even that still needs to get ramped up. Those little test kits need to be made and sent out, and, and there's a lot of stuff that goes into it, and and we're hearing a lot about shortages, specifically with healthcare workers, with personal protective equipment, masks, all that stuff. But these testing kits also suffer from some of those shortages. The chemical agents using those kits, the swabs to get the samples. There's a lot of things that are in short supply right now, and all of that needs to get ramped up. That's correct, and that's why some of these groups, uh, the big lab testing groups and some of those are saying, let's limit the testing right now and to these high-priority people because there are these shortages, and that's kind of backing up manufacturing in some cases. I, I spoke with a manufacturer who was you know, working on making sure he could get all the right little chemicals to put in it and, and the swabs and that kind of thing, and he has multiple suppliers, but he's on the phone working this thing to make sure that happens, and there's just a big demand for these products right now. You keep hearing it a lot. We're all in this together. We have to practice a social distancing. There's a, a bit of patience that goes into this that unfortunately a lot of people don't have because, you know, you hear scary words like pandemic and whatnot, and, and people are legitimately concerned. So, But it is kind of this patience that we have to practice with all of this as well. Right. And more and more of these are getting approved. I mean, just in the couple of days since I wrote my story, there's been a couple more tests approved under these emergency use authorizations by the FDA. So more tests are coming on the market there's another entire kind of test which tries to figure out if you have immunity, if you already had the disease, and those are going to, you're going to start hearing more about those. They're not available widely here in the United States yet, but other countries are working on that, uh, getting folks tested to figure out, hey, maybe it's safe for you to go back to work. You've had the disease. You presumably have immunity now. Julie Appleby, Senior Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's <laughs> go.
There's some people who think it's likely that well before the first confirmed cases showed up here, there may have been people that weren't particularly sick that just showed up here and the disease was already spreading quietly well before those first cases showed up in January. Joining us now is Faye Flam, science journalist and opinion columnist at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Faye. Hey, thanks for having me. Since this whole coronavirus pandemic really got started in the United States, we've kind of been obsessed with tracking it, seeing the total number of confirmed cases. But it's really hard to base it on that. We know that uh, numbers keep going up as more testing occurs. But even then, you know, we don't really have, quote unquote, real time numbers because some of these testings could take a week for results to come through a couple days. So it's really tough to gauge how all of this is going. So this notion that confirmed cases, the metric is really hard to go by on that. So, Faye, you wrote an article talking about other things to look at for how fast this could be spreading. I was in touch with some epidemiologists and statisticians and people that are really trying to get a handle on these numbers. And the numbers of confirmed cases, which are the ones that everybody's obsessed with, are kind of a mix uh, that's hard to sort out of increases in the numbers of people who actually are infected and the number of people who are getting tests. The actual number of infected people is unknown at this point and won't be knowable until we can do different kinds of testing. But the death rate is a real number, but that is lagging behind. So what we're trying to do is figure out, well, how many more people are likely to die and how do we keep more people from dying? So one of the things people are hoping to get better handle on is the number of people that enter the hospital, that that's a really meaningful number because it can give us a lot of information about how this pandemic is growing. And you look at places like China, obviously, where this kind of started, they have a population of 1.5 billion people. They have about 80,000 cases. And that just seems so small compared to the amount of people. And we know there's a lot of people that don't have the same type of symptoms, not as severe symptoms. So there's people that could have had it. It was a minor cold for them and never got tested, never went to a hospital. So it's hard to go with the confirmed cases for anything like that. So beyond hospitalizations and death rates, what else could we be looking at? One of the things that may happen, we may be able to do random sampling, which has been done in a couple of places. It was done in a small town in Italy where you just get a random group of people that are perfectly healthy. You just take a sample and then test everybody. And then you can see how widespread the virus is. Another thing that we should be able to do fairly soon is antibody testing. And that's really important because it tells you the number of people that have been infected. So the antibodies don't show up right away, but they stay with you afterwards. So we can find out how far this has actually already been spreading. There are some people who think it's likely that well before the first confirmed cases showed up here, there may have been people that weren't particularly sick that just showed up here and the disease was already spreading quietly well before those first cases showed up in January. There's constantly things being written up about this. And there was somebody that was kind of saying, could that December cough have been some of this? And the real fact is that we just don't know at this point. We kind of have to get well beyond this so we can look at all the data that we've gathered and really put the picture together. The other thing that a lot of people keep talking about are age and pre-existing conditions. We know that the most vulnerable group is older people, but it might not necessarily just be just because they're old. It really looks like it has a lot more to do with these pre-existing conditions. I talked to Stanford epidemiologist Steve Goodman, who has been taking a very close look at this. And 
what he told me was, you know, once you get the the data by age and by pre-existing conditions, then you can start to tease apart these things because a lot of the pre-existing conditions that seem to put people at higher risk are things that also increase with age. But age might not be the relevant thing. It might be the pre-existing conditions or what we really need to keep our eye on. And that would mean the people that really need to be careful and the people we need to protect are a little different from the people we thought. And he has since gotten some data. I actually talked with him since the story ran, and he said that it confirms what he suspected, that the pre-existing conditions are the more important factor here. So with all of this, I mean, it's tough. We want to know how this is happening. And with the way the news cycle is and everything, we're getting so much all the time. Every day, there's some type of new thing that we're either learning about the virus itself or how it's been traveling. It's really tough to kind of comprehend all of that. And the unfortunate part is that we're going through it right now. So we won't be able to know until at least we hit the peak of cases here in the United States, maybe, so we can start looking back at some of the data. And that's really the stuff that we're going to have to pay attention to. We won't know if all of these lockdowns and social distancing are that effective until after we at least hit the peaks of this thing. I think that we have to be patient, though. I also feel optimistic that our country's scientists are going to make a lot of progress in the next two or three weeks in understanding what we have on our hands. Right now, Steve Goodman said it was like building an airplane in the air, that it feels a little like we're just in the dark. But they are gathering data and they are trying to understand all of these facets of this disease. And I think once they start to get a handle on it, we'll have a more focused strategy for moving forward. Faye Flam, science journalist and opinion columnist at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. She went to her obstetrician's office and they said, ah, it kind of looks like you might be starting to go into labor. Uh, You should probably go to the hospital. And she said, well, let me just swing by my house and pick up my husband first. And they said, oh, no, 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 your husband is not is not going to be allowed to come. Joining us now is Laura Casisto, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Laura. Thank you. We've previously done a story on the podcast about life's big moments that are being upended because of coronavirus, this extreme social distancing that we're having to practice right now. And these big moments in life just having to be modified, postponed, canceled, all that. And one of the major things that is happening is that this is forcing pregnant women and moms-to-be to make tough choices. There's some hospitals that have put rules out where you can't have anybody in the room with you while you're giving birth out of an abundance of caution. But this means that your partner might not be able to be there at the moment of birth. Laura, tell us a little bit about what's going on. Yeah, pregnancy is sort of unique in terms of these life moments in that it's something where for most people, at least, it's pretty much inevitable that you're going to end up in a hospital, you know, that you're going to have to interact with the medical system, go to a doctor, and that is uniquely challenging at this point. Um, And so hospitals are really grappling with how do they keep staff safe? How do they keep women safe? But how do you also kind of try to keep things as normal as possible for people? Um, and hospitals all over the country have been going back and forth over the last couple of weeks uh, and, and really kind of 
restricting and, and changing their visitor policies. And um, most now will certainly not allow you to have, you know, your doula there to coach you, your mom there to take pictures. Uh, but some of them have also, um, at points, put in place policies that won't also let you allow you to have your husband there. Uh, and those, as you would imagine, have had the most stringent pushback from people. Yeah, you spoke to a woman who was about to give birth and the hospital wouldn't allow her husband in there. So they were calling other hospitals to see if they could take any last minute patients so that he would be able to be there at that time. Yeah, this is just a crazy story. She went to her obstetrician's office and they said, ah, it kind of looks like you might be starting to go into labor. Uh, you should probably go to the hospital. And she said, well, let me just swing by my house and pick up my husband first. And they said, oh, no, 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 your husband is not, is not going to be allowed to come. And you can imagine that kind of how emotionally overwhelming that was for both of them. You know, they really had very little time to play with, and she's learning just then that her husband's not going to be able to come with her. Um, so they ended up calling around, finding another hospital, a uh, local hospital that would take them. But, you know, they spent, you know, sort of this time as she was going into labor, frantically find it, trying to find a new hospital and having to go to this hospital where they didn't really know anybody. Uh, it worked out okay for them, but you can just imagine the stress that that would be put you under. And the rules are going to be different for each hospital across the country. Obviously, New York, New Jersey, California, where there are big hotspots right now, they're going to have more restrictions in place. And two hospitals that you talked about specifically in your piece were New York Presbyterian and Mount Sinai Health System, which we've heard tons of stories already. They're at the forefront of taking in and helping patients that have coronavirus right now. So how are they going about all of this? Yeah, so it was a crazy roller coaster of a week uh, for me as a reporter to some degree, but more than anything for for women who were were set to give birth in the last week. Um, both Mount Sinai and New York Presbyterian about a week ago came out and said they weren't going to allow uh, partners to be there with women as they were giving birth, um, and you know really kind of stuck by that policy. Uh, even though there was quite a bit of public pushback, quite a bit of pressure, a petition that got over half a million signatures. Uh, and then over the weekend, New York State came out and said, we're going to now mandate that you have to allow a partner to be there. So they they went and reversed that policy. But uh, it's going to be, I think, a challenging issue. I think that's just a sort of taste of what hospitals around the country are going to be dealing with as coronavirus spreads to more places. Because... Mount Sinai and New York Presbyterian said, look, we were having, you know, people come into the labor and delivery ward and test positive for coronavirus. And we just can't put women on the ward and our medical staff at that kind of a risk. So what are people doing on the other side of this thing? A lot of times they're doing FaceTime delivery. So honestly, it's falling to the nurses, the other people, the medical professionals in the room to have to hold that phone to be able to do that FaceTime while the mom is giving birth. And you have a couple of examples where families were doing just that. The nurses had to help out and be that support system because others couldn't be there. Yeah, I am. I think this is going to be a kind of challenge going forward is the the, the strain that this is going to put on the medical staff to have to step in where maybe a doula or a mom or even a, a husband or a partner uh, would have been able to, to be there to help and support. Um, you know, there's a photo that ran with my story of a woman having to take a selfie of herself right after having given birth to her son because her husband wasn't there. Um, it's a kind of just surreal set of circumstances. Uh but uh, one being kind of dictated by this uh, this unfolding crisis. Laura Casisto, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. 
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.